Good morning, RCC. Great to have you guys with us. Thanks for being at uh, any of the campuses. It's incredible. And thanks for being a part of this church. If we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Matt, by the way. And if you are newer around here, uh, I think I can say this because I'm not biased. I'm an outsider who's looking in and been watching what you guys have been doing for a while. So if you're new around here, the thing I want you to know is you are sitting around some extraordinary, extraordinary people. You really are. You're sitting around some people who love their community so deeply. And you guys at RCC, you prove it not just by the amount of time you give, but by the amount of money that you give and you invest back in the community. And one of the things that I love about it, just watching from the outside, is this is not just some general idea for you of, oh, we love our community. No, it's very, very personal. And so if you're new around here, you just need to know the people you're sitting around, they, they personally love you. They personally care about you, and they really do want you to know that they're for you. It's one of the reasons that um, every week you get served so well here, because these folks want you to know that God's for you and that they're for you by how well they serve you. So uh, if you're new, just know it's, this is an incredible, incredible, incredible community of people. And that's what we're going to talk about today for just a minute. What is it that makes a community irresistible? Now, if you're just joining this conversation around reclaiming irresistible, Paul has introduced an idea that I think is such a remarkable idea, and it's just a simple fact that the church should be irresistible. And by irresistible, we just mean the church should be the kind of place in the community that people who don't believe anything like us still want to come and belong and be a part of us. That there ought to be people in our communities that go, I don't go to that church, I'm never going to go to that church, I don't believe anything like that church, but... I'm so glad they're in my community. If they ever left, I would ask them to stay. If they ever said they were going to quit, we would miss them if they didn't show up. That's what the church should look like. And the reason the church should be irresistible is very simply because Jesus was irresistible. When he was on this earth, people who were nothing like him liked him, and he liked them back, which may be even more remarkable. You had the most unholy, ungodly, unrighteous people on the planet interacting with the holiest, godliest, most righteous person who has ever lived, and they were not put off by him, they were not intimidated by him, they didn't feel like they didn't belong with him, they wanted to be with him. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what does it look like to reclaim that sense of irresistibility? What does it look like to become a group of people who are like Jesus was when he was here? Because the Apostle Paul, when he was writing about the church as it was getting birthed, he referred to the church as the body of Christ, and he basically explained it this way. He said, now Jesus is no longer physically on earth, but I'm telling you, when people get around the church, not individually, none of us are this good, but collectively, when people get around the church, it ought to be almost like it was to be physically in the presence of Jesus. That's how irresistible it ought to be. So, for a few minutes today... I want to dig into this idea with you of what does it look like to create that kind of irresistible community, the kind of community that causes people to want to lean in and go, okay, I want to belong. I want to be a part of that. So let me start by giving you my definition of the church, okay? This isn't official, but here's my definition of the church. The church is simply this. It's a community of people who've been changed by the resurrection of Jesus and inspired by the command of Jesus. So a church is not a meeting place. It's not the buildings. That's just concrete and carpet and steel. That's, that's nothing important. The church is actually a movement. It is a community of people who have been changed first and foremost by the resurrection of Jesus. Because if there had not been a resurrection, there would be no church today. 
When Jesus died on a cross, there were no followers. Nobody was sitting there going, I'll tell you what, we all know what's going to happen. He's coming back in three days. Let's plan a resurrection party. It's going to be awesome. No, they all ran, didn't they? They all gave up hope. It was, as far as they were concerned, game over. The only reason we have a church today is because three days later, he walked out of a tomb and they saw him with their own eyes and they felt the... the uh, where the spikes had gone through his wrist and they felt where the spikes had gone through his feet and they saw where the spear had gone through his side and they said, oh my gosh, we can't believe it, but it's undeniable. He's here. And they had dinner with him. They had breakfast with him. Over 500 people talked to him and suddenly this group of people who were all eyewitnesses launched this movement that we call the church. And then they began to share what they had seen. And then people who talked to eyewitnesses believed and other people who talked to eyewitnesses believed. And the next thing you know, you had this movement going on. And there was no real rationale or explanation for it apart from the fact that they had seen Jesus die and three days later they had seen him come back to life. And so you know what that movement of people, that community of people did? They began to take everything Jesus had said seriously, which makes perfect sense. Because when a man predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you just go with whatever he says, right? It's like, okay, I'm all in. So that's what they did. And that group of people was inspired by what he taught. They were inspired by the command or the message of Jesus. And in week one of the series, Paul addressed this. This command of Jesus was so simple. It was, it was far less complicated than what they had grown up with, but it was far more demanding at the same time. So let me give you a little context. On the night of his arrest, Jesus is sitting just before all this takes place. He's in an upper room. Some of you know this story. His 12 closest disciples, these guys are sitting around a table with him. And then Judas gets up and he leaves to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows that's coming. And he looks at the guys and he says, okay, the way I have related to you up to this point, it's about to change. You know, you spent the last three years by my side. Well, that's not going to be possible anymore. I'm leaving, but it's actually better for you that I'm leaving. He's trying to help them understand what's about to happen and get them all ready. And they get worried and anxious and troubled. And they're like, no, 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 you can't leave. We don't want you leaving. We don't know where you're going. He's trying to explain it all. And so finally he sits them down. And he says, no, no, here's what you have to understand. Here's what you have to remember. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. And he looks in the eyes of these 11 guys. And here's what he says. A new command I give you, which would have gotten the attention of these guys because they had grown up in Judaism. They were good Jewish boys. They understood there were 613 commands, and they believed in Judaism. It had become such a rule-based religion. They had all come to believe the only way to make God happy was to follow all the rules perfectly. So here they are with 613 rules. At the core of that were the Big Ten, right, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is looking at them going, I want to give you a new command, implying I am wiping away all 613 commands. And I'm sure they were thinking, you can't do that. He's going, yeah, they're irrelevant now. Well, you surely don't, you don't mean the Ten Commandments. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm wiping that away. I'm replacing it all with one simple command because if you get this one right, you won't need any others. If you get this one right, it covers everything else. And here it is. Love one another. That's it? Yeah, that's it. I'm sure these guys are looking at each other like, well, that's easy. And Jesus going, no, no, no. You totally misunderstand if you think it's easy. Because I'm not talking about the kind of love that comes natural to people. I'm not talking about the kind of love where you love the people who are like you. And he qualifies what kind of love this is. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is his way of looking around the room, looking in their eyes, going, okay, okay. You know how I've loved you for the last three years. Unconditionally, haven't I? 
And he could have looked over at Matthew and said, hey, Matthew, you remember what you were doing and where you were when I met you? Yeah, I remember. You don't have to bring it up. No, I'm going to bring it up again. Because you were on the side of the road at your tax collector's booth. You were a traitor to your own people. You were one of the most hated people in the entire country because you were stealing money from them and you had aligned yourself with Rome. And do you remember what I did when I showed up? I walked up to you and I said, Matthew, come follow me. And the other 10 guys sitting around this table right now, they all looked at me and said, no, we don't want him following. And I said, yep, he's coming anyway. And then you remember we went to your house and I had a party with all of your tax collecting friends. And these guys were like, mama wouldn't want us to be here. And I told him it was okay. You know, we spent that time. Do you remember? I loved you unconditionally. Yeah, Matthew go. Yeah, I remember. Jesus is going, okay, Matthew, I want you to spend the rest of your life loving people the way I've loved you. And then he could have looked over at Nathaniel and said, hey, Nathaniel, you remember what you said about me the first time we met? When you were invited to come meet me, you said, uh, I'm not going to mess with that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You dissed my entire hometown, Nathaniel. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that. But I didn't rescind my invitation. I didn't tell you, well, too bad. You're too skeptical and all your doubts. I don't have any time for you. No, no, no. I invited you to follow me anyway. And you've been able to spend the last three years with me. Now, Nathaniel, I want you to spend the rest of your life loving the people around you just like I've loved you. He could have looked at James and John, the brothers, and said, hey, do you two remember what you did that day when we walked out of that village? And they would have ducked their head and said, this is so embarrassing. Why do they keep talking about this? And he goes, yeah, yeah. You remember? Because there was a moment where Jesus and his disciples walked into a village. The people there didn't treat them as respectfully as James and John thought they should. And so they left the village and on the way out, now think about how audacious this must have been. On the way out, James and John look at Jesus and say, hey, we know how disrespectful they were to you. Do you want us to talk to God and have him call fire down from heaven and destroy that village? How audacious, how arrogant do you have to be to look at Jesus and say, hey, you want us to get God to do something for you? Jesus is like, do you not know who I am? You know, totally missed the point. And Jesus that day said, no, 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 no. We're not calling fire down from heaven. That's, that's not how we treat people who disrespect us. Jesus could have looked at them that night and said, you remember, I didn't throw you out of my group. I didn't tell you you missed it. And you know what? I don't have any time for you anymore. No, I just kept loving you unconditionally. Now, you two guys go spend the rest of your life loving people that way. He could have looked at Peter so, Peter, do you remember? Well, the list is too long. I don't have time to go through it all. Peter, you have blown it so many times. You're still sitting here, though. Now, I just want you to go love people the way I have unconditionally loved you. See, this was an entirely different way of loving. And what Jesus knew, as if three years of these guys experiencing his love had not been enough, what Jesus knew was in just a few short hours— Unconditional love was going to hang on a Roman cross in flesh and blood. They were going to see what selfless, sacrificial, supernatural, unconditional love looked like in a way they would never, ever forget. So he wanted them to know if they didn't know anything else. This is what you're supposed to do. There's just one command now. You just love each other the way I've loved you. And if you do that, everything else will take care of itself. And then he makes a statement that's a little surprising to me. He looks him in the eye and he says this, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
This is the only thing you have to do. This is going to be the distinguishing mark and the driving message of the early church. It's not going to be t-shirts. They're not going to know because you tell them. They're not going to have to know because you got a, a cling on your car. No, no, no. They're going to know you are with me because you love them like I've loved you. And that is exactly what the first century followers of Jesus did. That early church took this so seriously that they completely changed the Roman culture. And it was not easy. I don't think we can fully appreciate this today because we've all grown up in America and an American culture with American values that have been influenced and informed by Jesus and his teachings. But in that first century Roman world, in that first century Greek world, none of that was true. As a matter of fact, in that culture, love was seen as a weakness, not a strength. In that culture, if you had power and you had might, then you got to decide what was right. And no one had intrinsic value. No one believed a human being had intrinsic value. They only believed a person had value if they had wealth, if they had status, if they had power. And if you were unfortunate enough to lose your wealth, status, or power, you lost your value in the eyes of the people around you. As a matter of fact, Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist, he has devoted most of his life to trying to explain how this small group of Jesus followers in the first century, in what he calls the armpit of the Roman Empire, Israel. I mean, it's just such a tiny little occupied country. How in the world could a small group of Jesus followers launch a movement that changed the world? And literally, here we are 2,000 years later because of them. How in the world could that happen? Rodney spent his entire life trying to explain that. He's written a few books about it. One of them's called The Rise of Christianity. And I want to read you just a little bit about what he said in that book. I just find it to be fascinating. Here's how he describes it. He says, in contrast, in contrast to how the Christians, these early followers of Jesus, behaved in the first century. In contrast, in the pagan world, the Roman and Greek world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. And we can't wrap our heads around this, but in the first century Roman world, this was how they thought. Oh, you show somebody mercy? Well, that's a character flaw. Because they believed you got whatever you had coming to you. You reaped whatever you had sown. They believed it was karma. What goes around comes around. So if something terrible happens to you, well, that's just justice being served. You must have done something to deserve it. And under no circumstances did they feel an obligation to step in and to help in any way. Stark goes on and he writes, This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. See, none of the Roman gods, none of the Greek gods said that. As far as they were concerned, the Roman and Greek gods didn't care about humans at all. They just tolerated them. And so because the gods didn't care about humans, they didn't feel like they needed to care about humans. And here come Christians going, no, 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 there's only one God. And that one God cares deeply about you. That one God is a merciful God. And because he's merciful, we should be merciful to one another. Stark continues, he says, moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians, catch this, may not please God unless they love one another, was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. These Christians show up and they say, okay, we're actually convinced there is no way we can love Jesus unless we love you like Jesus, that we can't separate the two. 
that we can't just deal with everything's good between me and God and I'm not going to worry about how I treat you. No, no, no. It's one and the same. And then Stark ends with this. He says, but the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Now, this is what caught the attention of a first century world. It made a little bit of sense, I guess, if you're going to love and take care of your family. It made a little bit of sense if you were going to love and take care of people who believed like you. But Stark said the thing that changed the first century was that these Christians showed up and they loved the people who believed nothing like them. And they loved the people who behaved nothing like them. And they loved the people who weren't even for them. They loved their enemies this way. And they showed up and they showed mercy to people who would never show mercy to them. They showed up and they showed compassion to people who would never show compassion to them. And it changed the world. But it was not easy. As a matter of fact, just a few years later, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to Christians living in Rome. Can you imagine this? They're living right in the center of this culture where love is a weakness, mercy is a character defect, and they're going, how do we live this out? How do we do this? It's such a great question. It's the same question that I would ask you. Is it possible to actually be the kind of irresistible community that lives this out day after day after day? Is it possible to be a, the kind of church, the kind of community that loves one another the way Jesus has loved us? And how do you do that? Well, the good news is I think it's possible. And you're a great test case. Because if you can get Gator fans, Seminole fans, and Roll Tide fans to all love each other, you can do anything. It's true, isn't it? So you guys, if y'all can do it, then the whole world's going to know it's possible, okay? The Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians in Rome going, we don't know if it's possible. And he says, yeah, it's possible. And he gets very, very practical and he says, let me just show you behavior-wise what it looks like to love one another the way Jesus has loved us. So I want to take just a minute, and I just want to run through, read through with you the advice the Apostle Paul gave them. Here's how he described it. He started by saying, well, love must be sincere. What's that mean? It just means if you're going to love people like Jesus loves you, then you've got to love them for who they are, not what they do. It's easy to love people who love you back. It's easy to do good to people who do good to you. Listen, the reality is you don't have to have the power of God, the strength of God, the help of God to do any of that. You don't have to be a Christian. Anybody loves people who love them. Anybody can do good to people who do good to them. But Paul says this is a different kind of love. This is a selfless, sacrificial, supernatural kind of love where you don't love people based on what they do or do not do for you. You love people based on who they are. That you come to the conclusion that you'll never lock eyes with a person who wasn't made in the image of God. And no matter how they treat you, you're going to love them and treat them like God loves them. So your love must be sincere. Well, exactly what does that look like? He says, let me give you some examples. You need to hate what is evil and you need to cling to what is good. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to fight against evil and harm. Not just the evil and harm that's done to you. All of us do that. He says, you ought to fight against the evil and harm that's done to other people, even when it doesn't impact you. You should care about that. In the same way, you should fight for what's right and you should fight for what's good, not just what should be good for you, but you need to fight for good to be done to people who are around you. He goes on. He says, you need to be devoted to one another in love and you need to honor one another above yourselves. 
You should be so devoted to one another that the people in your community never wonder if you're going to be there or not. They know they can count on you. You are devoted to one another. And there's nothing that's going to move you. There's nothing that's going to cause you to walk away. There's nothing that's going to cause you to lean back. No. No matter what happens, they know you're there. And not only are you there, but you're going to honor one another above yourselves, which just means I'm going to always look to put your interests, needs, and desires above my own. Can you imagine what that kind of community would be like? The kind of community where everybody was trying to put the other person before themselves. Apostle Paul continues. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. This was his way of saying, you should be the kind of community that because I'm a part of it, I grow closer to God. You should be the kind of community that because I'm in it, you're helping me become more like Jesus. That just by being in your presence, you're going to guide and inspire and spur me on to do the things that I ought to do. And I'm going to do the same for you. He goes on, he writes, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. This is what it looks like to love people the way Jesus has loved you. Our God is an extraordinarily generous God. He shows up and meets all of our needs. So the Apostle Paul says we should do that for each other. Whenever you see a need, whenever you have an opportunity, you ought to meet it, even at personal cost to yourself. Now, if you think this is hard, it gets worse. He writes this next. He says, you should bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You know that person who hurts you? You know the person who, if they had a chance to hurt you, they would hurt you? The Apostle Paul's going, you ought to do good for that person. You ought to be for that person. You don't return evil for evil. You don't retaliate and try to hurt them because they hurt you. That's not what your heavenly father has done for you. So you're to love them the way Jesus has loved you. He goes on, he says, you should rejoice with those who rejoice and you should mourn with those who mourn. That inside of an irresistible community, people celebrate with one another. Even if bad things are going on for me right now and I have nothing to celebrate, if you have something to celebrate, I'm going to celebrate it. I'm not going to be jealous. I'm not going to be envious. I'm not going to say, God, why are you doing that for them and you're not doing it for me? No, no, no. This is the kind of community where we're going to celebrate anytime something good's going on with you and vice versa. We're going to mourn anytime something difficult is happening to you. We're going to celebrate the successes and we're going to share in your struggles. And if things get tough for you and it becomes difficult, we're not going to lean away. We're not going to go, oh man, that's just such a mess. I don't really want to get in the middle of that right now. They're going, no, no, no. And just walk. We're not walking away from the mess. We're going to lean in. We're going to help encourage and carry and support through all the struggles. He continues on. He says, you need to live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. This is his way of saying, you know what? In an irresistible community, you forgive and you forgive deeply and you forgive repeatedly. You got to live in harmony with each other. You got to fight for reconciliation. Because again, that is what your heavenly father has done for you. Jesus showed up and he offered you unconditional forgiveness. So we don't have the opportunity, if we're going to love people like Jesus has loved us, we don't have the opportunity to look at them and go, well, I forgave you once, I'm not forgiving you again. 
Well, I tried to reconcile once. I'm not going back and trying again. No. We forgive over and over and over and over again. We fight for reconciliation, even though it's difficult. We don't say it's too hard and I don't want to mess with them anymore and just walk away. We don't carry grudges. We don't live in the middle of that relational tension and continue to, to feed it. We don't say, oh, my feelings got hurt. My feelings got hurt. I'm not, no, I'm not talking to them anymore. No, I'm not going back there. My feelings got hurt. You got to know Jesus sometimes is shaking his head going, I died on a cross for you and you're struggling because your feelings got hurt. Like, what in the world? I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm sure it was a big deal, but comparing them, come on now. He's going, if I can forgive you, and yet some of us, we get our feelings hurt. We want to walk away. You don't do that in an irresistible community. You fight for the relationship because your heavenly father fought for a relationship with you. I'll read the rest of this quickly. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, you should live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he's thirsty, you should give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. You don't worry about justice. You leave the justice to God. You just offer forgiveness. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You want to know what it looks like to love one another the way Jesus has loved us? This is exactly what it looks like. This is what an irresistible community does. This is who an irresistible community is. So here's my question for you. Will you commit to being the kind of church that loves one another like this? Will you commit to being the kind of church that loves one another the way Jesus has loved you? Now, don't misunderstand this question because everybody's going, well, yeah, 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 we want to be that kind of church. I think we are that kind of church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, no, no, no. This isn't some general idea. Your church will never be this kind of irresistible community unless you personally are the kind of person who can love others the way Jesus has loved you. This isn't some general vague idea of, oh, it just happened, like this church. No, no, no. The church is just you. It's a person beside you. It's a person behind you and in front of you. So if you want to be this kind of church, that means it starts with you and it starts with me being these kinds of people, loving this kind of way. It means we have to be the kind of people who will fight for forgiveness and fight for reconciliation and fight for peace. We're not going to walk away when we get our feelings hurt. We're going to walk away when someone does wrong to us. We're going to extend the same type of unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love that Jesus has shown us. We're going to be the kind of people who show up and celebrate one another's successes and share in one another's struggles. The kind of people who are for people who are not for us and who love people who will never do good to us. It's when we become the kind of people who say, you know what, you don't have to believe like we believe. You don't even have, even have to walk in the doors of our church. We're still for you, and we're going to show it.
We're going to show it when everything's good and it's easy to show it, but we're really going to show it when everything's difficult and nothing in our human nature wants to extend grace to that person. We're going to do it anyway because that is what Jesus has done for us. Now, you know what will happen if you do this? You will grow spiritually in ways you never imagined. You will become more like Jesus in character because this is who he was. This is what he did. You'll experience, this is a little counterintuitive, but you'll actually experience a joy deeper than any joy you can get any other way. You'll be a light in your community. You'll be a light in your family. You'll be a light with your friends. I'll tell you what else will happen. You will cause people who believe nothing like you to lean in and go, I want to be a part of that anyway. See, I don't want you to misunderstand this. This is not selfish in any way. This is not, oh, let's get a group of Christians together who love each other and care for each other so much that we take care of each other's needs and it's just this happy, wonderful, supportive little group and we don't really pay attention to anybody else. It's just all about us. That's not what this is. This is the most selfless, sacrificial, unconditional kind of love and acceptance you can possibly demonstrate. But when a community of believers, when a church gets this and practices it, Day after day, time after time, year after year. You know what it does? In your community, you gain influence with people who believe nothing like you. That's what it does. It causes people to go, I don't believe any of that. I'm not sure I'll ever believe any of that. But they creep up to the edge and start peering into that community going, oh my goodness. I sure would love to have friends like that. I sure would love to be a part of a a group of people who are that supportive and that caring and that loving and that helpful. I don't have people around me. I don't have people in my life who are for me the way they're for people. I I don't believe like them, but I want to belong. I don't believe like them, but can I be a part? That's what will happen. The way Jesus put it was, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works, that they will see the way you love, and they will glorify your Father in heaven. See, when you love one another this way, it puts the light on Jesus, not on you. And people begin to notice, and people begin to discover, and then people begin to experience a grace they didn't even know was possible. And you gain the opportunity to influence people to begin a relationship with the same Jesus who's changed you. And it's all because you learn to love one another the way Jesus has already loved you. That's what earns you the influence. And we're going to pick it up right there next week. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us the wisdom to know what to do with this? Because the reality is, there are a lot of us who are listening to this going, oh my goodness, yeah, but I don't want to forgive that person. Oh yeah, but I'm, I'm too jealous. I don't want to go celebrate what's going on with them. Oh, I don't want to get back in the middle of that. And I don't want to fight for reconciliation there. The reality is this becomes very, very personal and very, very difficult. And so we just want to acknowledge that we don't have 
the capability or the power on our own to love people like this. We can love people who love us. We can't love people who hurt us this way on our own. We can't love our enemies this way on our own. So Father, would you give us the strength and the ability to, to demonstrate a supernatural, selfless, sacrificial kind of love to the people around us? This week, help us to take another step in growing towards that and do through us what we simply can't do ourselves. Most of all, thank you, Father, for showing us what this looks like because we wouldn't believe it's possible if we hadn't experienced it. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross and rising again and loving us so unconditionally. Now help us this week to give to others simply what we have been given by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today. Y'all have a great week. You're dismissed.